Last time we joined the poor gentlemen as they put an end to Lucy's suffering. Now we're about to find out what kind of suffering they're going to endure when they all join together and go after the man himself, Dracula. So finally we're going to see the gang all get together and start working together in pursuit of their common enemy. Excited? I'm excited. So let's get on with it. Okay, here we go. The next part of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Chapter 17. Dr. Seward's Diary. Friday, 29th of September. Continued. When we arrived at the Barclay Hotel, Van Helsing found a telegram waiting for him. I'm coming up by train. Jonathan at Whitby. Important news. Mina Harker. The professor was delighted. Ah, that wonderful Madame Mina, he said. Pearl among women. She arrive, but I cannot stay. She must go to your house, friend John. You must meet her at the station. Telegraph her en route so that she may be prepared. When the wire was dispatched, he had a cup of tea. Over it, he told me of a diary kept by Jonathan Harker when abroad and gave me a typewritten copy of it, as also of Mrs. Harker's diary at Whitby. Take these, he said, and study them well. When I have returned, you must be master of all the facts, and we can then better enter on our inquisition. Keep them safe, for there is in them much of treasure. You will need all your faith, even you who have had such an experience as that of today. What is here told, he laid his hand heavily and gravely on the packet of papers as he spoke, may be the beginning of the end to you and me, and many another, or it may sound the knell of the undead who walk the earth. Read all, I pray you, with the open mind. And if you can add in any way to the story here told, do so, for it is all important. You have kept diary of all these so strange things, is it not so? Yes, then we shall go through all these together when that we meet. He then made ready for his departure, and shortly after drove off to Liverpool Street. I took my way to Paddington, where I arrived about 15 minutes before the train came in. The crowd melted away, after the bustling fashion common to arriving platforms, and I was beginning to feel uneasy lest I might miss my guest, when a sweet-faced, dainty-looking girl stepped up to me, and after a quick glance said, Dr. Seward, is it not? And you are Mrs. Harker, I answered at once, whereupon she held out her hand. I knew you from the description of poor dear Lucy, but she stopped suddenly, and a quick blush overspread her face. The blush that rose to my own cheeks somehow set us both at ease, for it was a tacit answer to her own. I got her luggage, which included a typewriter, and we took the underground to Fenchurch Street, after I had sent a wire to my housekeeper to have a sitting room and bedroom prepared at once for Mrs. Harker. In due time we arrived. She knew, of course, that the place was a lunatic asylum, but I could see that she was unable to repress a slight shudder when we entered. She told me that if she might, she would come presently to my study as she had much to say. So here I am, finishing my entry in my phonograph diary whilst I await her, as yet I have not had the chance of looking at the papers which Van Helsing left with me, though they lie open before me. 
I must get her interested in something, so that I may have an opportunity of reading them. She does not know how precious time is, or what a task we have in hand. I must be careful not to frighten her. Here she is. Mina Harker's Journal, Friday, 29th of September. After I had tidied myself, I went down to Dr. Seward's study. At the door I paused a moment, for I thought I heard him talking with someone. As, however, he had pressed me to be quick, I knocked at the door, and on his calling out to come in, I entered. To my intense surprise, there was no one with him. He was quite alone, and on the table opposite him was what I knew at once from the description to be a phonograph. I had never seen one, and was much interested. I hope I did not keep you waiting, I said, but I stayed at the door as I heard you talking, and thought there was someone with you. Oh, he replied with a smile, I was only entering my diary. Your diary? I asked him in surprise. Yes, he answered. I keep it in this. As he spoke, he laid his hand on the phonograph. I felt quite excited over it, and blurted out, Why, oh, this beats even shorthand. May I hear it say something? Certainly, he replied with alacrity, and stood up to put it in train for speaking. Then he paused, and a troubled look overspread his face. The fact is, he began awkwardly, I only keep my diary in it, and as it is entirely, uh, almost entirely, about my cases, it may be awkward. That is, I mean... He stopped, and I tried to help him out of his embarrassment. You helped to attend dear Lucy at the end. Let me hear how she died. For all that I can know of her, I shall be very grateful. She was very, very dear to me. To my surprise, he answered with a horror-struck look in his face. Tell you of her death? Not for the wide world. Why not, I asked, for some grave, terrible feeling was coming over me. Again he paused, and I could see that he was trying to invent an excuse. At length he stammered out, You see, I do not know how to pick out any particular part of the diary. Even while he was speaking, an idea dawned upon him and he said with unconscious simplicity, in a different voice and with the naivety of a child, that's quite true upon my honour, honest Indian. <laughs> I could not but smile, at which he grimaced. I gave myself away that time, he said. But do you know that, although I have kept the diary for months past, it never once struck me how I was going to find any particular part of it in case I wanted to look it up. By this time, my mind was made up that the diary of a doctor who attended Lucy might have something to add to the sum of our knowledge of that terrible being. And I said boldly, Then, Dr. Seward, you had better let me copy it out for you on my typewriter. He grew to a positively deathly pallor as he said, No, 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 for all the world I wouldn't let you know that terrible story. Then it was terrible. My intuition was right. For a moment I thought, and as my eyes ranged the room, unconsciously looking for something or some opportunity to aid me, they lit on the great batch of typewriting on the table. His eyes caught the look in mine, and without his thinking followed their direction. As they saw the parcel, he realised my meaning. You do not know me, I said. When you have read these papers, my own diary and my husband's also, which I have typed, you will know me better. I have not faltered in giving every thought of my own heart in this cause, but of course you do not know me, yet. 
and I must not expect you to trust me so far. He is certainly a man of noble nature. Poor dear Lucy was right about him. He stood up and opened a large drawer, in which were arranged in order a number of hollow cylinders of metal, covered with dark wax, and said, You are quite right. I did not trust you because I did not know you. But I know you now, and let me say that I should have known you long ago. I know that Lucy told you of me. She told me of you, too. May I make the only atonement in my power? Take the cylinders and hear them. The first half dozen of them are personal to me, and they will not horrify you. Then you will know me better. Dinner will by then be ready. In the meantime, I shall read over some of these documents, and shall be better able to understand certain things. He carried the phonograph himself up to my sitting room, and adjusted it for me. Now I shall learn something pleasant, I am sure, for it will tell me the other side of a true love episode, of which I know one side already. Dr. Seward's Diary, Friday 29th of September. I was so absorbed in that wonderful diary of Jonathan Harker, and that other of his wife, that I let time run on without thinking. Mrs. Harker was not down when the maid came to announce dinner, so I said, She is possibly tired, let dinner wait an hour, and I went on with my work. I had just finished Mrs. Harker's diary when she came in. She looked sweetly pretty, but very sad and her eyes were flushed with crying. This somehow moved me much. Of late I have had cause for tears, God knows, but the relief of them was denied me. And now the sight of those sweet eyes, brightened with recent tears, went straight to my heart. So I said as gently as I could, Ah, I greatly fear I have distressed you. Oh no, not distressed me, she replied, but I have been more touched than I can say by your grief. That is a wonderful machine, oh, but it is cruelly true. It told me in its very tones the anguish of your heart. It was like a soul crying out to Almighty God. Oh, no one must hear them spoken ever again. See, I have tried to be useful. I have copied out the words on my typewriter, and none other need now hear your heart beat as I did. No one need ever know, shall ever know, I said in a low voice. She laid her hand on mine and said very gravely, Ah, but they must. Must? But why? I asked. Because it is a part of the terrible story, a part of poor dear Lucy's death and all that led to it. Because in the struggle which we have before us to rid the earth of this terrible monster, we must have all the knowledge and all the help which we can get. I think that the cylinders which you gave me contained more than you intended me to know, but I can see that there are in your record many lights to this dark mystery. You will let me help, will you not? I know all up to a certain point, and I see already, though your diary only took me to the 7th of September, how poor Lucy was beset, and how her terrible doom was being wrought out. Jonathan and I have been working day and night since Professor Van Helsing saw us. He has gone to Whitby to get more information, and he will be here tomorrow to help us. We need have no secrets among us. Working together and with absolute trust, we can surely be stronger than if some of us were in the dark. She looked at me so appealingly, and at the same time manifested such courage and resolution in her bearing, that I gave in at once to her wishes. You shall, I said, do as you like in the matter. God forgive me if I do wrong. There are terrible things yet to learn of, but if you have so far travelled on the road to poor Lucy's death, you will not be content, I know, to remain in the dark. 
Nay, the end, the very end, may give you a gleam of peace. Come, there is dinner. We must keep one another strong for what is before us. We have a cruel and dreadful task. When you have eaten, you shall learn the rest, and I shall answer any questions you ask, if there be anything which you do not understand, though it was apparent to us who were present. Mina Harker's Journal, Friday 29th of September. After dinner, I came with Dr. Seward to his study. He brought back the phonograph from my room, and I took my typewriter. He placed me in a comfortable chair, and arranged the phonograph so that I could touch it without getting up, and showed me how to stop it in case I should want to pause. Then he very thoughtfully took a chair with his back to me, so that I might be as free as possible, and began to read. I put the forked metal to my ears and listened. When the terrible story of Lucy's death and uh, and all that followed was done, I lay back in my chair, powerless. Fortunately, I am not of a fainting disposition. When Dr. Seward saw me, he jumped up with a horrified exclamation and hurriedly taking a case bottle from a cupboard, gave me some brandy, which in a few minutes somewhat restored me. My brain was all in a whirl, and only that there came through all the multitude of horrors the holy ray of light that my dear, dear Lucy was at last at peace. I do not think I could have borne it without making a scene. It is all so wild and mysterious and strange that if I had not known Jonathan's experience in Transylvania, I could not have believed. As it was, I didn't know what to believe, and so got out of my difficulty by attending to something else. I took the cover off my typewriter and said to Dr. Seward, Let me write this all out now. We must be ready for Dr. Van Helsing when he comes. I have sent a telegram to Jonathan to come on here when he arrives in London from Whitby. In this matter, dates are everything, and I think that if we get all our material ready and have every item put in chronological order, we shall have done much. You tell me that Lord Godarming and Mr. Morris are coming too. Let us be able to tell them when they come. He accordingly set the phonograph at a slow pace, and I began to typewrite from the beginning of the seventh cylinder. I used manifold, and so took three copies of the diary, just as I had done with all the rest. It was late when I got through, but Dr. Seward went about his work of going his round of the patients. When he had finished, he came back and sat near me, reading, so that I did not feel too lonely whilst I worked. How good and thoughtful he is. The world seems full of good men, even if there are monsters in it. Before I left him, I remembered what Jonathan put in his diary, of the professor's perturbation at reading something in an evening paper at the station at Exeter. So seeing that Dr. Seward keeps his newspapers, I borrowed the files of the Westminster Gazette and the Pall Mall Gazette and took them to my room. I remember how much the Daily Graph and the Whitby Gazette, of which I had made cuttings, helped us to understand the terrible events at Whitby when Count Dracula landed, so I shall look through the evening papers since then, and perhaps I shall get some new light. I am not sleepy, and the work will help to keep me quiet. Dr. Seward's Diary, Saturday, 30th of September. Mr. Harker arrived at nine o'clock. He had got his wife's wire just before starting. He is uncommonly clever, if one can judge from his face, and full of energy. If his journal be true, and judging by one's own wonderful experiences it must be, he is also a man of great nerve. That going down to the vault a second time was a remarkable piece of daring. After reading his account of it, I was prepared to meet a good specimen of manhood, 
but hardly the quiet, business-like gentleman who came here today. Later. After lunch, Harker and his wife went back to their room, and as I passed a while ago, I heard the click of the typewriter. They are hard at it. Mrs. Harker says they are knitting together in chronological order every scrap of evidence they have. Harker has got the letters between the consignee of the boxes at Whitby and the carriers in London who took charge of them. He is now reading his wife's typescript of my diary. I wonder what they make out of it. Here he is. Strange that it never struck me that the very next house might be the Count's hiding place. Goodness knows that we had enough clues from the conduct of the patient Renfield. The bundle of letters relating to the purchase of the house were with the typescript. Oh, if we only had them earlier, we might have saved poor Lucy. And stop. That way madness lies. Harker has gone back and is again collating his material. He says that by dinner time they will be able to show a whole connected narrative. He thinks that in the meanwhile I should see Renfield, as hitherto he has been a sort of index to the coming and going of the Count. I hardly see this yet, but when I get at the dates I suppose I shall. What a good thing that Mrs Harker put my cylinders into type. We never could have found the dates otherwise. I found Renfield sitting placidly in his room with his hands folded, smiling benignly. At the moment he seemed as sane as anyone I ever saw. I sat down and talked with him on a lot of subjects, all of which he treated naturally. He then of his own accord spoke of going home, a subject he has never mentioned to my knowledge during his sojourn here. In fact, he spoke quite confidently of getting his discharge at once. I believe that had I not had the chat with Harker and read the letters and the dates of his outbursts, I should have been prepared to sign for him after a brief time of observation. As it is, I am darkly suspicious. All those outbreaks were in some way linked with the proximity of the Count. What, then, does this absolute content mean? Can it be that his instinct is satisfied as to the vampire's ultimate triumph? Stay. He is himself Zufagus, and in his wild ravings outside the chapel door of the deserted house, he always spoke of master. This all seems confirmation of our idea. However, after a while I came away. My friend is just a little too sane at present to make it safe to probe him too deep with questions. He might begin to think, and then... So I came away. I mistrust these quiet moods of his. So I have given the attendant a hint to look closely after him and have a straight waistcoat ready in case of need. Jonathan Harker's Journal Friday 29th of September, in train to London When I received Mr Billington's courteous message that he would give me any information in his power, I thought it best to go down to Whitby and make, on the spot, such inquiries as I wanted. It was now my object to trace that horrid cargo of the Counts to its place in London. Later, we may be able to deal with it. Billington Jr., a nice lad, met me at the station and brought me to his father's house, where they had decided that I must stay the night. They are hospitable, with true Yorkshire hospitality. Give a guest everything and leave him free to do as he likes. They all knew that I was busy and that my stay was short, and Mr Billington had ready in his office all the papers concerning the consignment of boxes. They gave me almost a turn to see again one of the letters which I had seen on the Count's table before I knew of his diabolical plans. Everything had been carefully thought out and done systematically and with precision. He seemed to have been prepared for every obstacle which might be placed by accident in the way of his intentions being carried out. 
To use an Americanism, he had taken no chances, and the absolute accuracy with which his instructions were fulfilled was simply the logical result of his care. I saw the invoice and took note of it. Fifty cases of common earth to be used for experimental purposes. Also the copy of the letter to Carter Paterson and their reply. Of both of these, I got copies. This was all the information Mr. Billington could give me, so I went down to the port and saw the coast guards, the customs officers, and the harbour master. They had all something to say of the strange entry of the ship, which is already taking its place in local tradition. But no one could add to the simple description, 50 cases of common earth. I then saw the station master, who kindly put me in communication with the men who had actually received the boxes. Their tally was exact with the list, and they had nothing to add except that the boxes were main and mortal heavy, and that shifting them was dry work. One of them added that it was hard lines, that there wasn't any gentleman, such like as yourself, Squire, to show some sort of appreciation of their efforts in a liquid form. Another put in a rider that the thirst then generated was such that even the time which had elapsed had not completely allayed it. Needless to add, I took care before leaving to lift, forever and adequately, this source of reproach. Saturday, 30th of September. The station master was good enough to give me a line to his old companion, the station master at King's Cross, so that when I arrived there in the morning I was able to ask him about the arrival of the boxes. He too put me at once in communication with the proper officials, and I saw that their tally was correct with the original invoice. The opportunities of acquiring an abnormal thirst had been here limited. A noble use of them had, however, been made and again I was compelled to deal with the result in an ex post facto manner. From thence I went on to Carter Paterson's central office, where I met with the utmost courtesy. They looked up the transaction in their daybook and letterbook, and at once telephoned to their King's Cross office for more details. By good fortune, the men who did the teaming were waiting for work, and the official at once sent them over, sending also by one of them the waybill and all the papers connected with the delivery of the boxes at Carfax. Here again I found the tally agreeing exactly. The carrier's men were able to supplement the paucity of the written words with a few details. These were, I shortly found, connected almost solely with the dusty nature of the job and of the consequent thirst engendered in the operators. On my affording an opportunity, through the medium of the currency of the realm, of the allaying at a later period this beneficent evil, one of the men remarked, That here house, Governor, it's the rummiest I ever was in. Blimey, but it ain't been touched since a hundred years. There was dust that thick in the place that you might have slept on it without hurting of your bones. And the place was that neglected that you might have smelled old Jerusalem in it. But the old chapel, that took the cake it did. Me and my mate, we thought we wouldn't never get out quick enough. Lord, I wouldn't take lessner a quid a moment to stay there after dark. Having been in the house, I could well believe him. But if he knew what I know, he would, I think, have raised his terms. Of one thing I am now satisfied, that all the boxes which arrived at Whitby from Varna in the Demeter were safely deposited in the old chapel of Carfax. There should be fifty of them there, unless any have since been removed. As from Dr. Seward's diary, I fear. I shall try to see the carter who took away the boxes from Carfax when Renfield attacked them. By following up this clue, we may learn a good deal. Later. Mina and I have worked all day, and we have put all the papers into order. Mina Harker's Journal.
Saturday, 30th of September. I am so glad that I hardly know how to contain myself. It is, I suppose, the reaction from the haunting fear which I have had, that this terrible affair and the reopening of his old wound might act detrimentally on Jonathan. I saw him leave for Whitby with as brave a face as I could, but I was sick with apprehension. The effort has, however, done him good. He was never so resolute, never so strong, never so full of volcanic energy as at present. It is just as that dear, good Professor Van Helsing said. He is true grit, and he improves under strain that would kill a weaker nature. He came back full of life and hope and determination. We have got everything in order for tonight. I feel myself quite wild with excitement. I suppose one ought to pity anything so hunted as is the Count. That is just it. This thing is not human, not even beast. To read Dr. Seward's account of poor Lucy's death and what followed is enough to dry up the springs of pity in one's heart. Later. Lord Godarming and Mr. Morris arrived earlier than we expected. Dr. Seward was out on business and had taken Jonathan with him, so I had to see them. It was to me a painful meeting, for it brought back all dear Lucy's hopes of only a few months ago. Of course they had heard Lucy speak of me, and it seemed that Dr. Van Helsing too has been quite uh, blowing my trumpet, as Mr. Morris expressed it. <laughs> Poor fellows. Neither of them is aware that I know all about the proposals they made to Lucy. They did not quite know what to say or do, as they were ignorant of the amount of my knowledge, so they had to keep on neutral subjects. However, I thought the matter over, and came to the conclusion that the best thing I could do would be to post them in affairs right up to date. I knew from Dr. Seward's diary that they had been at Lucy's death, her real death, and that I need not fear to betray any secret before the time. So I told them, as well as I could, that I had read all the papers and diaries, and that my husband and I, having typewritten them, had just finished putting them in order. I gave them each a copy to read in the library. When Lord Godarming got his and turned it over, <laughs> it does make a pretty good pile, he said, did you write all this, Mrs. Harker? I nodded, and he went on. I don't quite see the drift of it, but you people are all so good and kind and have been working so earnestly and so energetically that all I can do is to accept your ideas blindfold and try to help you. I have had one lesson already in accepting facts that should make a man humble to the last hour of his life. Besides, I know you loved my poor Lucy. Here he turned away and covered his face with his hands. I could hear the tears in his voice. Mr. Morris, with instinctive delicacy, just laid a hand for a moment on his shoulder and then walked quietly out of the room. I suppose there is something in a woman's nature that makes a man free to break down before her and express his feelings on the tender or emotional side without feeling it derogatory to his manhood. For when Lord Godarming found himself alone with me, he sat down on the sofa and gave way utterly and openly. I sat down beside him and took his hand. I hope he didn't think it forward of me, and that if he ever thinks of it afterwards, he never will have such a thought. There I wrong him. I know he never will. He is too true a gentleman. I said to him, for I could see that his heart was breaking. I loved dear Lucy, and I know what she was to you, and what you were to her. She and I were like sisters, and now she is gone, 
Will you not let me be like a sister to you in your trouble? I know what sorrows you have had, though I cannot measure the depth of them. If sympathy and pity can help in your affliction, won't you let me be of some little service? For Lucy's sake. In an instant, the poor dear fellow was overwhelmed with grief. It seemed to me that all that he had of late been suffering in silence found a vent at once. He grew quite hysterical, and raising his open hands, beat his palms together in a perfect agony of grief. He stood up and then sat down again, and the tears rained down his cheeks. I felt an infinite pity for him, and opened my arms unthinkingly. With a sob he laid his head on my shoulder, and cried like a weary child whilst he shook with emotion. We women have something of the mother in us that makes us rise above smaller matters when the mother's spirit is invoked. I felt this big, sorrowing man's head resting on me, as though it were that of the baby that may some day lie on my bosom, and I stroked his hair as though he were my own child. I never thought at the time how strange it all was. After a little bit his sobs ceased, and he raised himself with an apology, though he made no disguise of his emotion. He told me that for days and nights past, weary days and sleepless nights, he had been unable to speak with anyone, as a man must speak in his time of sorrow. There was no woman whose sympathy could be given to him, or with whom, owing to the terrible circumstances with which his sorrow was surrounded, he could speak freely. I know now how I suffered, he said, as he dried his eyes, but I do not know even yet, and none other can ever know, how much your sweet sympathy has been to me today. I shall know better in time, and believe me that though I am not ungrateful now, my gratitude will grow with my understanding. You will let me be like a brother, will you not, for all our lives, for dear Lucy's sake. <laughs> for dear Lucy's sake, I said as we clasped hands. Aye, and for your own sake, he added, for if a man's esteem and gratitude are ever worth the winning, you have won mine today. If ever the future should bring you to a time when you need a man's help, believe me, you will not call in vain. God grant that no such time may ever come to you to break the sunshine of your life. But if it should ever come, promise me that you will let me know. He was so earnest, and his sorrow was so fresh, that I felt it would comfort him. So I said, I promise. As I came along the corridor, I saw Mr. Morris looking out of a window. He turned as he heard my footsteps. How is art? he said. Then noticing my red eyes, he went on. Ah, but I see you've been comforting him. Poor old fella, he needs it. No one but a woman can help a man when he is in trouble of the heart, and he had no one to comfort him. He bore his own trouble so bravely that my heart bled for him. I saw the manuscript in his hand, and I knew that when he read it he would realise how much I knew. So I said to him, I wish I could comfort all who suffer from the heart. Will you let me be your friend? And will you come to me for comfort if you need it? You will know later on why I speak. He saw that I was in earnest, and stooping, took my hand, and raising it to his lips, kissed it. It seemed but poor comfort to so brave and unselfish a soul, and impulsively I bent over and kissed him. The tears rose in his eyes, and there was a momentary choking in his throat. He said quite calmly, Little girl, you will never regret that true-hearted kindness so long as you ever live. Then he went into the study to his friend.
little girl. <laughs> the very words he had used to Lucy. And oh, but he proved himself a friend. Chapter 18 Dr. Seward's Diary Saturday, 30th of September I got home at five o'clock and found that Godarming and Morris had not only arrived, but had already studied the transcript of the various diaries and letters which Harker and his wonderful wife had made and arranged. Harker had not yet returned from his visit to the carrier's men, of whom Dr. Hennessy had written to me. Mrs. Harker gave us a cup of tea, and I can honestly say that, for the first time since I have lived in it, this old house seemed like home. When we had finished, Mrs. Harker said, Dr. Seward, may I ask a favour? I want to see your patient, Mr. Renfield. Do let me see him. What you have said of him in your diary interests me so much. She looked so appealing and so pretty that I could not refuse her, and there was no possible reason why I should, so I took her with me. When I went into the room, I told the man that a lady would like to see him, to which he simply answered, Why? She is going through the house and wants to see everyone in it, I answered. Oh, very well, he said. Let her come in by all means, but just wait a minute till I tidy up the place. His method of tidying was peculiar. He simply swallowed all the flies and spiders in the boxes before I could stop him. It was quite evident that he feared, or was jealous of, some interference. When he had got through his disgusting task, he said cheerfully, Let the lady come in and sat down on the edge of his bed with his head down, but with his eyelids raised, so that he could see her as she entered. For a moment I thought that he might have some homicidal intent. I remembered how quiet he had been just before he attacked me in my own study, and I took care to stand where I could seize him at once if he attempted to make a spring at her. She came into the room with an easy gracefulness which would at once command the respect of any lunatic, for easiness is one of the qualities mad people most respect. She walked over to him, smiling pleasantly, and held out her hand. "'Good evening, Mr. Renfield,' said she. "'You see, I know you, for Dr. Seward has told me of you.' He made no immediate reply, but eyed her all over intently, with a set frown on his face. This look gave way to one of wonder, which merged in doubt. Then, to my intense astonishment, he said, "'You're not the girl the doctor wanted to marry, are you?' You can't be, you know, for she's dead. Mrs. Harker smiled sweetly as she replied, Oh, no, I have a husband of my own, to whom I was married before I ever saw Dr. Seward, or he me. I am Mrs. Harker. Then what are you doing here? My husband and I are staying on a visit with Dr. Seward. Then don't stay. But why not? I thought that this style of conversation might not be pleasant to Mrs. Harker any more than it was to me, so I joined in. How did you know I wanted to marry anyone? His reply was simply contemptuous, given in a pause in which he turned his eyes from Mrs. Harker to me, instantly turning them back again. <laughs> what an asinine question! I don't see that at all, Mr. Renfield, said Mrs. Harker, at once championing me. He replied to her with as much courtesy and respect as he had shown contempt to me. "'You will, of course, understand, Mrs. Harker, that when a man is so loved and honoured as our host is, everything regarding him is of interest in our little community. 
Dr. Seward is loved not only by his household and his friends, but even by his patients, who, being some of them hardly in mental equilibrium, are apt to distort causes and effects. Since I myself have been an inmate of a lunatic asylum, I cannot but notice that the sophistic tendencies of some of its inmates lean towards the errors of non-cause and ignoratio elenchi. I positively opened my eyes at this new development. Here was my own pet lunatic, the most pronounced of his type that I had ever met with, talking elemental philosophy and with the manner of a polished gentleman. I wonder if it was Mrs. Harker's presence which had touched some chord in his memory, if this new phase was spontaneous or in any way due to her unconscious influence. She must have some rare gift or power. We continued to talk for some time, and seeing that he was seemingly quite reasonable, she ventured, looking at me questioningly as she began, to lead him to his favourite topic. I was again astonished, for he addressed himself to the question with the impartiality of the completest sanity. He even took himself as an example when he mentioned certain things. Why, I myself am an instance of a man who had a strange belief. Indeed, it was no wonder that my friends were alarmed and insisted on my being put under control. <laughs> I used to fancy that life was a positive and perpetual entity, and that by consuming a multitude of live things, no matter how low in the scale of creation, one might indefinitely prolong life. At times I held the belief so strongly that I actually tried to take human life. The doctor here will bear me out on that one occasion I tried to kill him, for the purpose of strengthening my vital powers, by the assimilation with my own body of his life through the medium of his blood relying, of course, upon the scriptural phrase, for the blood is the life. Though indeed the vendor of a certain nostrum has vulgarised the truism to the very point of contempt. Isn't that true, Doctor? I nodded assent, for I was so amazed that I hardly knew what to either think or say. It was hard to imagine that I had seen him eat up his spiders and flies not five minutes before. Looking at my watch, I saw that I should go to the station to meet Van Helsing, so I told Mrs. Harker that it was time to leave. She came at once, after saying pleasantly to Mr. Renfield, Goodbye, and I hope I may see you often, under auspices pleasanter to yourself. To which, to my astonishment, he replied, Goodbye, my dear. I pray God I may never see your sweet face again. May he bless and keep you. When I went to the station to meet Van Helsing, I left the boys behind me. Poor Art seemed more cheerful than he has been since Lucy first took ill, and Quincy is more like his own bright self than he has been for many a long day. Van Helsing stepped from the carriage with the eager nimbleness of a boy. He saw me at once and rushed up to me, saying, Ah, friend John, how goes all? Well, so, I have been busy, for I come here to stay if need be. All affairs are settled with me, and I have much to tell. Madame Mina is with you? Yes, and her so fine husband, and Arthur, and my friend Quincy, they are with you too. Good. As I drove to the house, I told him of what had passed, and of how my own diary had come to be of some use through Mrs. Harker's suggestion, at which the professor interrupted me. Ah, that wonderful Madame Mina. She has man's brain, a brain that a man should have were he much gifted, and a woman's heart. The good God fashioned her for a purpose, believe me, when he made that so good combination. Friend John, 
Up to now, fortune has made that woman of help to us. After tonight, she must not have to do with this so terrible affair. It is not good that she ran a risk so great. We men are determined, nay, are we not pledged to destroy this monster. But it is no part for a woman. Even if she be not harmed, her heart may fail her in so much and so many horrors, and hereafter she may suffer, both in waking from her nerves and in sleep from her dreams. And besides, she is young woman and not so long married. There may be other things to think of some time, if not now. You tell me she has wrote all? Then she must consult with us. But tomorrow she say goodbye to this work and we go alone. I agreed heartily with him. And then I told him what we had found in his absence, that the house which Dracula had bought was the very next one to my own. He was amazed, and a great concern seemed to come on him. Oh, that we had known it before, he said, for then we might have reached him in time to save poor Lucy. <sighs> However, the milk that is spilled cries not out afterwards, as you say. We shall not think of that, but go on our way to the end. Then he fell into a silence that lasted till we entered my own gateway. Before we went to prepare for dinner, he said to Mrs. Harker, I am told, Madame Mina, by my friend John, that you and your husband have put up in exact order all things that have been up to this moment. Not up to this moment, Professor, she said impulsively, but up to this morning. But why not up to now? We have seen hitherto how good light all the little things have made. We have told our secrets, and yet no one who has told is the worse for it. Mrs. Harker began to blush, and taking a paper from her pocket, she said, Dr. Van Helsing, will you read this and tell me if it must go in? It is my record of today. I too have seen the need of putting down at present everything, however trivial. But there is little in this except what is personal. Must it go in? The professor read it over gravely and handed it back, saying, It need not go in if you do not wish it, but I pray that it may. It can but make your husband love you all the more, and all us, your friends, more honour you, as well as more esteem and love. She took it back with another blush and a bright smile. And so now, up to this very hour, all the records we have are complete and in order. The professor took away one copy to study after dinner, and before our meeting, which is fixed for nine o'clock. The rest of us have already read everything, so when we meet in the study, we shall all be informed as to facts, and can arrange our plan of battle with this terrible and mysterious enemy. Mina Harker's Journal, Saturday, 30th of September. When we met in Dr. Seward's study, two hours after dinner, which had been at six o'clock, we unconsciously formed a sort of board or committee Professor Van Helsing took the head of the table, to which Dr. Seward motioned him as he came into the room. He made me sit next to him on his right, and asked me to act as secretary. Jonathan sat next to me. Opposite us were Lord Godarming, Dr. Seward, and Mr. Morris, Lord Godarming being next to the professor, and Dr. Seward in the centre. The professor said, I may, I suppose, take it that we are all acquainted with the facts that are in these papers. We all expressed assent, and he went on. Then it were, I think, good that I tell you something of the kind of enemy with which we have to deal. I shall then make known to you something of the history of this man, which has been ascertained for me, so we then can discuss how we shall act, 
and can take our measure according. There are such beings as vampires. Some of us have evidence that they exist. Even had we not the proof of our own unhappy experience, the teachings and the records of the past give proof enough for sane peoples. I admit that at the first I was skeptic. Were it not that through long years I have trained myself to keep an open mind, I could not have believed until such time as that fact thunder on my ear. See, see, I prove, I prove. Alas, had I known at the first what now I know, nay had I even guess at him, one so precious life had been spared to many of us who did love her. But that is gone, and we must so work that other poor souls perish not whilst we can save. The Nosferatu do not die like the bee when he sting once. He is only stronger, and being stronger have yet more power to work evil. This vampire which is amongst us is of himself so strong in person as twenty men. He is of cunning more than mortal, for his cunning be the growth of ages. He have still the aids of necromancy, which is, as his etymology imply, the divination by the dead, and all the dead that he can come nigh to are for him at command. He is brute, and more than brute, he is devil in callous, and the heart of him is not. He can, within limitations, appear at will, when and where, and in any of the forms that are to him. He can, within his range, direct the elements, the storm, the fog, the thunder, he can command all the meaner things, the rat and the owl and the bat, the moth and the fox and the wolf. He can grow and become small, and he can at times vanish and become unknown. How then are we to begin our strife to destroy him? How shall we find his where, and having found it, how can we destroy? My friends, this is much. It is a terrible task that we undertake, and there may be consequence to make the brave shudder. For if we fail in this our fight, he must surely win. And then where end we? Life is nothings, I heed him not. But to fail here is not mere life or death. It is that we become as him, that we henceforward become foul things of the night like him without heart or conscience, preying on the bodies and the souls of those we love best. To us forever are the gates of heaven shut, for who shall open them to us again? We go on for all time, abhorred by all, a blot on the face of God's sunshine, an arrow in the side of him who died for man. But we are face to face with duty, and in such case must we shrink. For me, I say no, but then I am old, and life with his sunshine, his fair places, his song of birds, his music and his love, life far behind. You others are young, some have seen sorrow, but there are fair days yet in store. What say you? Whilst he was speaking, Jonathan had taken my hand. I feared, oh, so much, that the appalling nature of our danger was overcoming him when I saw his hand stretch out but it was life to me to feel its touch. So strong, so self-reliant, so resolute. A brave man's hand can speak for itself. It does not even need a woman's love to hear its music. When the professor had done speaking, my husband looked in my eyes, and I in his. There was no need for speaking between us. 
I answer for Mina and myself, he said. Count me in, Professor, said Mr. Quincy Morris, laconically as usual. I am with you, said Lord Godarming, for Lucy's sake, if for no other reason. Dr. Seward simply nodded. The Professor stood up, and after laying his golden crucifix on the table, held out his hand on either side. I took his right hand, and Lord Godarming his left. Jonathan held my right with his left and stretched across to Mr. Morris. So, as we all took hands, our solemn compact was made. I felt my heart icy cold, but it did not even occur to me to draw back. We resumed our places, and Dr. Van Helsing went on, with a sort of cheerfulness which showed that the serious work had begun. It was to be taken as gravely and in as businesslike a way as any other transaction of life. Well, you know what we have to contend against, but we too are not without strength. We have on our side power of combination, a power denied to the vampire kind. We have resources of science. We are free to act and think, and the hours of the day and the night are ours equally. In fact, so far as our powers extend, they are unfettered, and we are free to use them. We have self-devotion in a cause, and an end to achieve which is not a selfish one. These things are much. Now let us see how far the general powers arrayed against us are restrict, and how the individual cannot. In fine, let us consider the limitations of the vampire in general, and of this one in particular. All we have to go upon are traditions and superstitions. These do not at the first appear much when the matter is one of life and death, nay of more than either life or death. Yet must we be satisfied. In the first place, because we have to be, no other means is at our control. And secondly, because after all, these things, tradition and superstition, are everything. Does not the belief in vampires rest for others, though not, alas, for us, on them. A year ago, which of us would have received such a possibility in the midst of our scientific, sceptical, matter-of-fact 19th century? <laughs> we even scouted a belief that we saw justified under our very eyes. Take it then, that the vampire and the belief in his limitations and his cure rest for the moment on the same base. For let me tell you, he is known everywhere that men have been in old Greece, in old Rome, he flourished in Germany all over, in France, in India, even in the Chersonese, and in China, so far from us in all ways, there even is he, and the peoples fear him at this day. He have followed the wake of the berserker Icelander, the devil-begotten Hun, the Slav, the Saxon, the Magyar. So far, then, we have all we may act upon, and let me tell you that very much of the beliefs are justified by what we have seen in our own so unhappy experience. The vampire live on and cannot die by mere passing of the time. He can flourish when that he can fatten on the blood of the living. Even more, we have seen amongst us that he can grow younger, that his vital faculties grow strenuous and seem as though they refresh themselves when his special pabulum is plenty but he cannot flourish without this diet. He eat not as others. Even friend Jonathan, who lived with him for weeks, did never see him to eat, never. He throws no shadow, he make in the mirror no reflect, as again Jonathan observe, 
He has the strength of many in his hand. Witness again Jonathan, when he shut the door against the wolves, and when he helped him from the diligence too. He can transform himself to wolf, as we gather from the ship arrival in Whitby, when he tear open the dog. He can be as bat, as Madame Mina saw him on the window at Whitby, and as friend John saw him fly from this so near house, and as my friend Quincy saw him at the window of Miss Lucy. He can come in mist, which he create. That noble ship's captain proved him of this. But from what we know, the distance he can make this mist is limited, and it can only be around himself. He come on moonlight rays as elemental dust, as again Jonathan saw those sisters at the castle of Dracula. He becomes so small. We ourselves saw Miss Lucy, ere she was at peace, slip through a hair-breadth space at the tomb door. He can, when once he find his way, come out from anything or into anything. No matter how close it be bound, or even fused up with fire, solder you call it. He can see in the dark. No small power this, in a world which is one half shut from the light. Ah, but hear me through. He can do all these things, yet he is not free. Nay, he is even more prisoner than the slave of the galley, than the madman in his cell. He cannot go where he lists. He who is not of nature has yet to obey some of nature's laws. Why, we know not. He may not enter anywhere at the first, unless there be someone of the household who bid him to come, though afterwards he may come as he please. His power ceases, as does that of all evil things, at the coming of the day. Only at certain times can he have limited freedom. If he be not at the place whither he is bound, he can only change himself at noon or at exact sunrise or sunset. These things are we told, and in this record of ours we have proof by inference. Thus, whereas he can do as he will within his limit, when he have his earth home, his coffin home, his hell home, the place unhallowed, as we saw when he went to the grave of the suicide at Whitby, still at other time he can only change when the time come. It is said too that he can only pass running water at the slack or the flood of the tide. Then there are things which so afflict him that he has no power, as the garlic that we know of, and as for things sacred, as this symbol, my crucifix, that was amongst us even now when we resolve, to them he is nothing, but in their presence he take his place far off and silent with respect. There are others too, which I shall tell you of, lest in our seeking we may need them. The branch of wild rose on his coffin keep him that he move not from it. A sacred bullet fired into the coffin kill him so that he be true dead, and as for the stake through him, we know already of its peace, or the cut-off head that giveth rest. We have seen it with our eyes. Thus when we find the habitation of this man that was, we can confine him to his coffin and destroy him if we obey what we know. But he is clever. I have asked my friend Arminius of Budapest University to make his record, and from all the means that are, he tell me of what he has been. He must indeed have been that voivod Draculia who won his name against the Turk over the great river on the very frontier of Turkeyland. If it be so, then was he no common man, for in that time, and for centuries after, 
he was spoken of as the cleverest and the most cunning, as well as the bravest of the sons of the land beyond the forest. That mighty brain and that iron resolution went with him to his grave and are even now arrayed against us. The Draculias were, says Arminius, a great and noble race, though now and again were scions who were held by their coevals to have had dealings with the evil one. They learned his secrets in the Scholomance, amongst the mountains over Lake Hermannstadt, where the devil claims the tenth scholar as his due. In the records are such words as Stregoika, Witch, Ordog and Pokol, Satan and Hell. And in one manuscript, this very Draculia is spoken of as a vampire, which we all understand too well. There have been from the loins of this very one great men and good women, and their graves make sacred the earth where alone this foulness can dwell. For it is not the least of its terrors that this evil thing is rooted deep in all good. In soil barren of holy memories, it cannot rest. Whilst they were talking, Mr. Morris was looking steadily at the window, and now he got up quietly and went out of the room. There was a little pause, and then the professor went on. And now we must settle what we do. We have here much data, and we must proceed to lay out our campaign. We know from the inquiry of Jonathan that from the castle to Whitby came fifty boxes of earth, all of which were delivered at Carfax. We also know that at least some of these boxes have been removed. It seems to me that our first step should be to ascertain whether all the rest remain in the house beyond that wall where we look today, or whether any more have been removed. If the latter, we must trace... Here we were interrupted in a very startling way. Outside the house came the sound of a pistol shot. The glass of the window was shattered with a bullet, which ricocheting from the top of the embrasure struck the far wall of the room. I am afraid I am at heart a coward, for I shrieked out. The men all jumped to their feet. Lord Godalming flew over to the window and threw up the sash. As he did so, we heard Mr. Morris's voice without. Sorry, I fear I have alarmed you. I shall come in and tell you about it. A minute later, he came in and said, It was an idiotic thing of me to do, and I ask your pardon, Mrs. Harker, most sincerely. I fear I must have frightened you terribly. But the fact is that whilst the professor was talking, there came a big bat and sat on the windowsill. I have got such a horror of the damn brutes from recent events that I cannot stand them, and I went out to have a shot, as I have been doing of late, of evenings whenever I have seen one. You used to laugh at me for it then, Art. Did you hit it? asked Dr. Van Helsing. I don't know. I fancy not, for it flew away into the wood. Without saying any more, he took his seat, and the professor began to resume his statement. We must trace each of these boxes, and when we are ready, we must either capture or kill this monster in his lair, or we must, so to speak, sterilize the earth, so that no more he can seek safety in it. Thus, in the end, we may find him in his form of man between the hours of noon and sunset, and so engage with him when he is at his most weak. And now for you, Madame Mina, this night is the end, until all be well. You are too precious to us to have such risk. When we part tonight, you no more must question. We shall tell you all in good time. 
We are men and are able to bear, but you must be our star and our hope, and we shall act all the more free that you are not in the danger such as we are. All the men, even Jonathan, seemed relieved, but it did not seem to me good that they should brave danger and perhaps lessen their safety, strength being the best safety, through care of me. But their minds were made up, and though it was a bitter pill for me to swallow, I could say nothing save to accept their chivalrous care of me. Mr. Morris resumed the discussion. As there is no time to lose, I'll vote we have a look at his house right now. Time is everything with him, and swift action on our part may save another victim. I own that my heart began to fail me when the time for action came so close, but I did not say anything, for I had a greater fear that if I appeared as a drag or a hindrance to their work, they might even leave me out of their councils altogether. They have now gone off to Carfax, with means to get into the house. Man-like, they have told me to go to bed and sleep. <laughs> as if a woman can sleep when those she loves are in danger. <sighs> I shall lie down and pretend to sleep lest Jonathan have added anxiety about me when he returns. Dr. Seward's Diary, Sunday, 1st of October, 4am. Just as we were about to leave the house, an urgent message was brought to me from Renfield to know if I would see him at once, as he had something of the utmost importance to say to me. I told the messenger to say that I would attend to his wishes in the morning. I was busy just at the moment. The attendant added, "'He seems very importunate, sir.' I've never seen him so eager. I don't know but what, if you don't see him soon, he will have one of his violent fits. I knew the man would not have said this without some cause, so I said, All right, I'll go now. And I asked the others to wait a few minutes for me, as I had to go and see my patient. Take me with you, friend John, said the professor. His case in your diary interested me much, and it had bearing too now and again on our case. I should much like to see him, and especially when his mind is disturbed. "'May I come too?' asked Lord Godami. "'Me too,' said Quincy Morris. I nodded, and we all went down the passage together. We found him in a state of considerable excitement, but far more rational in his speech and manner than I had ever seen him. There was an unusual understanding of himself, which was unlike anything I had ever met with in a lunatic, and he took it for granted that his reasons would prevail with others entirely sane. We all four went into the room, but none of the others at first said anything. His request was that I would at once release him from the asylum and send him home. This he backed up with arguments regarding his complete recovery, and adduced his own existing sanity. "'I appeal to your friends,' he said. "'They will perhaps not mind sitting in judgment on my case. By the way, you have not introduced me.' I was so much astonished that the oddness of introducing a madman in an asylum did not strike me at the moment, and besides there was a certain dignity in the man's manner so much of the habit of equality, that I at once made the introduction. Lord Godarming, Professor Van Helsing, Mr. Quincy Morris of Texas, Mr. Renfield. He shook hands with each of them, saying in turn, Lord Godarming, I had the honour of seconding your father at the Wyndham. I grieve to know by your holding of the title that he is no more. He was a man loved and honoured by all who knew him, and in his youth was, I have heard, the inventor of a burnt rum punch much patronised on Derby night. Mr. Morris, you should be proud of your great state. Its reception into the Union was a precedent which may have far-reaching effects hereafter, when the Pole and the Tropics may hold allegiance to the Stars and Stripes. 
the power of treaty may yet prove a vast engine of enlargement when the Monroe Doctrine takes its true place as a political fable. What shall any man say of his pleasure at meeting Van Helsing? Sir, I make no apology for dropping all forms of conventional prefix. When an individual has revolutionised therapeutics by his discovery of the continuous evolution of brain matter, conventional forms are unfitting, since they would seem to limit him to one of a class. You gentlemen, who by nationality, by hereditary, or by the possession of natural gifts are fitted to hold your respective places in the moving world, I take to witness that I am as sane as at least the majority of men who are in full possession of their liberties. And I am sure that you, Dr. Seward, humanitarian and medical jurist as well as scientist, will deem it a moral duty to deal with me as one to be considered as under exceptional circumstances. He made this last appeal with a courtly air of conviction which was not without its own charm. I think we were all staggered. For my own part, I was under the conviction, despite my knowledge of the man's character and history, that his reason had been restored, and I felt under a strong impulse to tell him that I was satisfied as to his sanity, and would see about the necessary formalities for his release in the morning. I thought it better to wait, however, before making so grave a statement, for of old I knew the sudden changes to which this particular patient was liable, so I contented myself with making a general statement, that he appeared to be improving very rapidly, that I would have a longer chat with him in the morning, and would then see what I could do in the direction of meeting his wishes. This did not at all satisfy him, for he said quickly, "'Oh, but I fear, Dr. Seward, that you hardly apprehend my wish. I desire to go at once, here, now, at this very hour, this very moment, if I may. Time presses, and in our implied agreement with the old scythe man, it is of the essence of the contract.' I am sure it is only necessary to put before so admirable a practitioner as Dr. Seward, so simple, yet so momentous a wish, to ensure its fulfilment. He looked at me keenly, and seeing the negative in my face turned to the others, and scrutinised them closely. Not meeting any sufficient response, he went on. Is it possible that I have erred in my supposition? You have, I said frankly, but at the same time, as I felt, brutally. There was a considerable pause, and then he said slowly, "'Then I suppose I must only shift my ground of request. "'Let me ask for this concession. "'Boon, privilege, what you will. "'I am content to implore in such a case, "'not on personal grounds, but for the sake of others. "'I am not at liberty to give you the whole of my reasons, "'but you may, I assure you, take it from me "'that they are good ones, sound and unselfish, "'and springing from the highest sense of duty.' Could you look, sir, into my heart, you would approve to the full the sentiments which animate me. Nay, more, you would count me among the best and truest of your friends. Again he looked at us all keenly. I had a growing conviction that this sudden change of his entire intellectual method was but yet another form or phase of his madness, and so determined to let him go on a little longer, knowing from experience that he would, like all lunatics, give himself away in the end. Van Helsing was gazing at him with a look of the utmost intensity, his bushy eyebrows almost meeting with the fixed concentration of his look. He said to Renfield, in a tone which did not surprise me at the time, but only when I thought of it afterwards, for it was as of one addressing an equal, "'Can you not tell frankly your real reason for wishing to be free tonight? I will undertake that if you will satisfy even me, a stranger, without prejudice, and with the habit of keeping an open mind.' Dr. Seward will give you, at his own risk and on his own responsibility, the privilege you seek. 
he shook his head sadly and with a look of poignant regret on his face. The professor went on. Come, sir, bethink yourself. You claim the privilege of reason in the highest degree, since you seek to impress us with your complete reasonableness. You do this, whose sanity we have reason to doubt, since you are not yet released from medical treatment for this very defect. If you will not help us in our effort to choose the wisest course, how can we perform the duty which you yourself put upon us? Be wise and help us, and if we can, we shall aid you to achieve your wish. He still shook his head as he said, Dr. Van Helsing, I have nothing to say. Your argument is complete, and if I were free to speak, I should not hesitate a moment. But I am not my own master in the matter. I can only ask you to trust me. If I am refused, the responsibility does not rest with me. I thought it was now time to end the scene, which was becoming too comically grave. So I went towards the door, simply saying, Come, my friends, we have work to do. Good night. As, however, I got near the door, a new change came over the patient. He moved towards me so quickly that for the moment I feared that he was about to make another homicidal attack. My fears, however, were groundless, for he held up his two hands imploringly and made his petition in a moving manner. As he saw that the very excess of his emotion was militating against him, by restoring us more to our old relations, he became still more demonstrative. I glanced at Van Helsing and saw my conviction reflected in his eyes. So I became a little more fixed in my manner, if not more stern, and motioned to him that his efforts were unavailing. I had previously seen something of the same constantly growing excitement in him when he had to make some request of which at the time he had thought much, such for instance as when he wanted a cat, and I was prepared to see the collapse into the same sullen acquiescence on this occasion. My expectation was not realised, for when he found that his appeal would not be successful, he got into quite a frantic condition. He threw himself on his knees and held up his hands, wringing them in plaintive supplication, and poured forth a torrent of entreaty, with the tears rolling down his cheeks and his whole face and form expressive of the deepest emotion. Let me entreat you, Dr. Seward. Oh, let me implore you to let me out of this house at once. Send me away how you will and where you will. Send keepers with me with whips and chains. Let them take me in a straight waistcoat, manacled and leg-ironed, even to a jail. But let me go out of this. You don't know what you do by keeping me here. I am speaking from the depths of my heart, of my very soul. You don't know whom you wrong or how, and I may not tell. Oh, woe is me, I may not tell. By all you hold sacred, by all you hold dear, by your love that is lost, by your hope that lives, for the sake of the Almighty, take me out of this and save my soul from guilt. Can't you hear me, man? Can't you understand? Will you never learn? Don't you know that I am sane and earnest now? That I am no lunatic in a mad fit, but a sane man fighting for his soul? Oh, hear me! Hear me! Let me go! Let me go! Let me go! I thought that the longer this went on, the wilder he would get, and so would bring on a fit. So I took him by the hand and raised him up. Come, I said sternly, no more of this. We have had quite enough already. Get to your bed and try to behave more discreetly. He suddenly stopped and looked at me intently for several moments. Then, without a word, he rose and, moving over, sat down on the side of the bed. The collapse had come, as on former occasions, 
just as I had expected. When I was leaving the room, last of our party, he said to me in a quiet, well-bred voice, You will, I trust, Dr. Seward, do me the justice to bear in mind, later on, that I did what I could to convince you tonight. Oh dear, poor Renfield. What's gotten him so worked up? Well, I think we'll find out next week. And poor Mina as well. I mean, if I were treated like that, I'd be pretty pissed about it too. <laughs> but, you know, not a lot of uh, feminism to be found in this work, unfortunately. Apart from Mina just being generally brilliant. I guess you can at least say for the men that their hearts are in the right place. They're... They're acting to try and protect her, but I'd still be mad. Anyway, I should stop there. I could go on for ages, but I have gone well over my hour mark today. So that's enough from me. I shall leave you now to get on with whatever you're getting on with. And hopefully you'll join me next time for the next part of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Until then, keep reading. <laughs>